the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir. Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us for this uh, Tuesday, final day of August. Wow. Isn't that amazing? It felt uh, felt as if we just took the Christmas tree down a few days ago. Yeah, and soon we'll be putting... <laughs> should have left it up, because soon we'll be putting it back up again. Oh, my goodness. Well, great to have you with us on this Tuesday. Much to talk about on the show. I, I will start by saying... Um, my engineer is a nice guy, but sometimes just not all that cooperative. I, I, I said, I'm going to run to the restroom. If I'm not back in time, start without me. But no. <laughs> he, he had to insist, no, nobody can do it like me. And I told him, I can't believe I'm the only one that can sound like an idiot on the radio. But <laughs> in any event, here we are. All right. Lots to talk about today. We are hoping on a more serious note later on in tonight's show to get an update from Cal Fire uh, concerning progress and the sad situation that's continuing to unfold in uh, Northern California now with uh, flames beginning to invade um, Lake Tahoe. It's just it's shameful what's going on. It really is. So we'll try to get you an update for you later on in the program. Uh, school is back, in some cases soon to be back uh, in full force after the Labor Day weekend. And already parents are beginning to show concerns. And, you know, I think, truth be told, it's more than just hybrid learning, distance learning, confusing masking rules, all of this. It goes to more significant issues. For example, in Newport, south of us, down in SoCal, a teacher there is being investigated by her school district for suggesting that her students pledge allegiance to the pride flag. I think I'm kidding. English teacher Kristen Pitson works for the Newport Mesa Unified School District posted a video on TikTok explaining how she had packed up her American flag during the pandemic because it made her uncomfortable. Hmm. Won't comment on that. And has yet to find it. So when they went to uh, begin the uh, school day and uh, students were asked to stand at attention and recite the Pledge of Allegiance, no flag. So she said that they could pledge allegiance to the pride flag hanging on the wall. School district, of course, has replied by saying in a statement they respect the American flag and the value that students are taught and expect of teachers as well. This is just one example. Oh, there's more out there. Let's get a look at some. Brad Dacus joins us now, president, founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. And, Counselor, as always, we appreciate your time. I understand that uh, it's not just the case of teachers uh, going off the rails, but in some cases, school districts going off the rails, as is the case of what's happening at Fountain Blue High School in Mandeville, which is about 40 miles north 
of New Orleans. Tell us more about this particular story and what's happening there with teacher Jonathan Coppell. Press that button and then press that button and he should be there. Oh, dear. You know, we had this uh, problem crop up a couple of days ago. And uh, I think it was a necessity of dropping 25 cents. <laughs> the old adage, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it really make a noise? This is a case where if you do a talk show but the guest can't be heard, is it really a talk show? Or is it more just a monologue? So let's see here. They're, they're wildly pressing buttons in the other room while I be as patient as possible here. Press that button. I'll press that button. And then we'll press that one right there. And we'll see. Okay, Brad, can you hear me now? Or better put, can we hear you? Doobie doobie doo. Do 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 do. Okay, they they've got to uh they've got to feed the hamster apparently, so you be patient for a moment. We'll all be here. It's like a cliffhanger. That's <laughs> Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we have adequately fed the hamster, even provided a nice cheesecake for dessert. The hamster is happy once again, and therefore I present to you, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, Mr. (laughs) Attorney Brad Dacus, counselor. I apologize for that. Sometimes things go south. So as we were saying before we were so rudely interrupted, uh, in addition to this teacher I spoke of earlier down in Newport that uh, absent the American flag in the classroom asked her class of students to pledge allegiance to the pride flag certainly ought to infuriate a lot of parents Uh, now we have the case of a teacher down in louisiana that had simply spoke out against the teaching of critical race theory and gender identity and now finds himself without a job tell us more yeah uh, this is a clear uh, violation of uh, free speech first amendment rights uh, no, no human being, including uh, public school teachers, uh, surrender their First Amendment rights to uh, to voice their opinion uh, outside the school on their own private time um, and risk losing their job. Now, communist China may require people to uh, agree with the state, uh, or you know, in order to work for the, Ch- the Chinese government. That's that's what they do. But that's not what we expect our public school systems to do with their employees. And uh, this, I think this teacher definitely has a case. And, and all of this was not even necessarily discussions that took place in the classroom. I understand that uh, the, the narrative seems to suggest that most of it was the teacher appearing before the public school board meeting and addressing concerns before the school board. Now, it seems to be a double whammy here that not only is the teacher being punished for holding views that I guess don't fit the narrative, but are teachers not able to express their concerns to their employers and the very people that they're supposed to be working for on behalf of the students who go to school? Uh, Yeah, they they are protected to be able to do that, and uh, that's you know why? Uh, you know, for example, I'm. That's one reason why we at Pacific Justice Institute have 
taken on a very similar case up in Oregon against the Grants Pass School District that fired two teachers recently for expressing themselves on their own private website, um, not even identifying themselves as teachers of a particular school and the name of the school. So on their own private time, off, off campus of the school, they talked about very reasonable policies that the, the, the majority of Americans would agree with, and yet because it wasn't uh, in accordance with the radical left policies of the school district, they were fired, and we had filed a lawsuit in federal court against that school district on behalf of those two teachers. Very similar case. And in this case here, I understand that the pressure kind of got ratcheted up and ratcheted up and, and, and finally suddenly found himself entirely without a job. And again, this wasn't because he was expressing ideas that went contrarian to the curricula or raising questions necessarily in the classroom itself, but rather simply presenting himself to a school board meeting asking these questions and it's almost as if i don't know the feeling that there was some embarrassment that the cat was out of the bag this is being done in a public venue before <gasps> taxpayers and parents who might suddenly find out what's really going on inside the public classroom i mean it, it, it there there's this difficult time i think for anyone and it will be interesting to see what the attorney on behalf of the district uh will present in in argument what kind of cases that he can cite in trying to defend this kind of action yeah he's gonna have a difficult time <clears throat> with uh you know he's a competent attorney looking at the real case he's gonna have a difficult time i believe because um, you know another example just like this in loudon county in virginia uh occurred recently and the virginia supreme court uh, upheld the teacher's uh, injunction against the school district, uh, claiming that this is a violation of his, his First Amendment rights and um, that uh, he did not uh, deserve that kind of treatment. So um, school districts are going to have a day of reckoning if they try to follow this path of silencing teachers, uh, expressing themselves outside the classroom, and punishing them, punishing them just because they don't agree with the radical left CRT and other uh, radical uh, agendas that are being pushed by public school districts, uh, courtesy of the teachers' union. And speaking of teachers' union, I'm, I'm curious in this particular scenario, uh, d did they weigh in on this? And if so, whose side do they defend? Yeah, that's the real paradox here, because teachers' unions are supposed to be defending teachers. That would be my guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, the problem is that teachers' unions are really actually more focusing on on agendas um, indoctrination uh, you know radicalism and that often interferes with their real job which is to make sure due process is uh, secured by by public school teachers that they have their their fair day in court if you will before being fired and unfortunately it appears that this uh, teachers union uh, has forsaken their their duty for which uh, these teachers pay pay dues to receive and that's like so many teachers are now exercising their rights uh, since the Supreme Court Janus decision to have all of their dues no longer, will no longer pay their dues to the union um, and no longer be a part of the teachers' union, which is a, a right of every public school teacher in the United States now. And I, I suppose a further irony in this case is the fact that we're not talking about, if this was occurring in, in Los Angeles or New York or Chicago, I'd say, well, kind of, you know, blue state par for the course. This is in a pretty conservative part of the country, 
and uh, the the awkwardness of not only the the union having to deal with their real position, uh, which should be uh, representing teachers, but then this sort of shadow agenda that rides in the background, uh, certainly demonstrative of not only uh, an ongoing problem for teachers, as we see more and more stifling of their First Amendment rights, that somehow when they become a teacher, they uh, they abandon those or surrender their First Amendment rights. But then, too, I would suppose as cases like this began to capture more attention across the country, the frustration that parents have, not only with the agenda that is being promoted by the districts and by the curricula, as well as what's being taught uh, by uh, rogue teachers in the classroom, along with questions about what teaching looks like in 2021 and in a day and age of COVID. We know certainly that uh, many of the models that were used in 2020 have been, educationally speaking, dismal disasters. So we appreciate the update on this, Counselor, and we'll ask you to help us continue to to follow the story as this no doubt makes its way through the judicial system. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad, as always, we appreciate the time and the insights. Well, if stories like that not infuriating enough for parents wondering what's going on with the agenda being promoted within government schools, there are broader questions now being raised in the the wake of COVID-19, everything from mask mandates to remote learning, hybrid learning, just how successful is all of that? And particularly against the backdrop of government schools that are under increasing pressure to perform up against real competition. That real competition often takes place in the form of charter schools, certainly more and more parents discovering the benefits of the very real sacrifice of homeschooling and certainly students that are enjoying private schooling and beginning to realize when you begin to take into account agendas, student-teacher ratios, focusing on the three R's, and then ultimately look at the number of students that are testing with higher scores and ultimately matriculate to two- and four-year colleges and universities by much wider margins. More and more parents are questioning, just what are we doing? It may be free, but maybe when it's free, (laughs) you ought to question its value. Now, let me add, before we bring our next guest on, this is not by any means to impugn the integrity of teachers everywhere or districts everywhere. There are a lot of fine schools, wonderful teachers, hardworking, sacrificing, love their students, passionate about teaching and helping children um, uh, learn, grow, and achieve and succeed. But there are growing problems. Joining me now is Bob Zadek. He is the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country, The Bob Zadek Show, heard locally in the Bay Area Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. He's also a best-selling author. Lots of great resources, by the way, available on Bob's website at bobzadek.com. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Bob, meanwhile, we're beginning to see as parents are seeing kids return back to the classroom following the the summer break, and there are ongoing concerns over everything from this hodgepodge of hybrid learning, remote learning, full-time in school, to wear a mask, not to wear a mask. And, of course, against this backdrop, the one thing that's suffering are students. 
You're exactly right, Craig. And uh, thank you, and you have for doing it. Thank you for inviting me to join you once again on your show. I certainly always appreciate spending time with you. I never get to spend enough, so I welcome the opportunity. Uh, I'd like to frame the issue that you posed uh, slightly differently, but we are going to ask the same question, just with a different focus. I will defy our listeners, I will defy anybody in America to tell me, tell anybody, on a value basis, tell me any product or service that the government offers if they are competing in the marketplace, tell me any product or service that the government does better, offers more value uh, on a pure market basis. Forgetting about the fact that government might operate some services at a loss because they are not subject to making a profit. But if the government were required, let us say, to break even, on a product or service. The way the post office is required by statute to break even, it just never does. But it's required to, it just doesn't do it. And, and can anybody name any product or service that in a marketplace environment, the government at least breaks even and God forbid even makes a profit? Don't bother looking, there aren't any. The government simply, as an organization, is not capable of doing so because they, they don't respond to market pricing. They, the government, whenever they offer a good or service, it is invariably in government-created monopoly conditions. The post office, for most of the life of our country, the post office, it was against the law to compete with the post office. Most people have grown up with FedEx and the like, but I didn't. There was a time when there was no FedEx. There was nothing, only the post office. But the world couldn't tolerate the lack of service, so market pressure was so profound that FedEx was able to compete, and now there's lots of competition. So why do I start with that? Because let's take schools. The government has chosen to kind of, in the old days, create a monopoly, when the only schools that you could send your child to were government schools. That was where, and you had to pay tuition to a government school, even if you didn't have kids. It was taxes you had to pay. The schools were offered as free, but they weren't free. It's just, it was free because somebody else was paying. Finally, charter schools came into the game and related school choice programs, and people started voting with their feet, so that now we have the government limiting the choice, limiting charter schools. So while the government likes to say that there is maximum market freedom in America, there is no 
maximum market freedom with schools. Why? Because public schools would go out of business. They would go out of business because they offer an inferior product at a too high a price. The price is buried. So right now, we are starting to see, just as we saw with the world that created FedEx, the market pressures are becoming so great. And Craig, man, do they have to be strong to overcome government with its law-writing ability. But despite the fact that government gets to write the laws, despite that, schools, government schools, are losing business. That tells you so much about the marketplace, Craig, because it's not like, well, I prefer to go to a private school or a non-government school. The pressure has to be so strong to enable those offering that product to overcome the government with their collective thumb on the scales. So we are watching right now the incredible power, once again, of the free market being more powerful than even government itself. It gives me goosebumps, and it is inevitable. And you know, the irony with all that, beyond issues related to outcomes, performance, student satisfaction, all of it, the utter irony is that um, the the non-government schools have quite the uphill battle because unlike the public schools where said education is paid for through your taxes, property taxes, local sales taxes, a combination of all of the above, um, if you choose to send your child to private school, it's not like you get a credit for the taxes that you paid where they would have gone to public school. You, in fact, have to make an additional over and above financial sacrifice in your family to pay for the school tuition almost in a sense like double taxation because you're still paying the taxes to privately I mean, to publicly educate your child though he or she does not attend a public school and then you're paying tuition for a private school parochial whatever the case might be so when parents i think bob are willing to make that kind of sacrifice it is demonstrative of the degree of dissatisfaction that is out there that in my mind goes well beyond concerns over distance learning and the whole debacle of education in 2020. Now, let me let me make it very clear that I believe it is a what's called a public good for government to encourage and support the education of youngsters. I believe that is so important that it is appropriate, although many others could disagree. In my mind, it is appropriate for government to encourage the educating of youngsters by being in the game. But the government can be in the game in two ways, and right now they are in the education game the wrong way. The wrong way is for government to give tax dollars to the providers of the public good. That is, give the money to the schools. Government should support education. I support that. But by giving money to the customer, the parent, not to the school, and the parent gets to vote 
with their dollars a far more sincere and powerful way to vote than with a ballot. You get to vote with your dollars every single day by voting for the schools that you believe are delivering the best value. It is always better to let the customer spend the money rather than give the money to the provider. And there's a uh, a wonderful economist uh, named Professor Don Boudreau at the Mercatus Center in George Mason University. He, many years ago, a decade ago, taught me a wonderful, very short analogy. Imagine, Craig, um, that all supermarkets were owned by the government. Imagine further, Craig, that when you moved into a neighborhood, you were assigned to a supermarket, and you were told you have to shop at that supermarket. And we, the government, will give you, will give the supermarket tax support. And you go in there, and you get to spend $200 a month at that supermarket, but you cannot take this credit you have and spend it anywhere else. What do you think would be the quality of the supermarket where you are required to shop, where they know they will get customers irrespective of how clean the floors are, how fresh the vegetables are, how how well package the meat products are, what do you imagine would be the quality of the service, the politeness of the staff, and the attention to your needs? What do you imagine that government-run supermarket would do if the neighborhood is, is very ethnic and the neighborhood is Hispanic? How much would that supermarket care about providing a wider assortment of ethnic foods for its ethnic neighborhood? Well, not at all, because they don't care if they make a profit. They do not have to satisfy the customers. They are civil service employees who almost cannot be fired. Now, if that system seems rather out of place in America. Why does a privately owned system of supermarkets work and not a privately owned system of schools? It's the same. You cannot make a distinction. And if one seems profoundly un-American and unfree market, and the other one seems consistent with our freedom of choice, then let's use the freedom of choice model as the model for education. It's really that simple. Thank you, Professor Boudreau, for that wonderful comparison. And, and it simply comes down to the notion that if free enterprise works in every other arena of life, why not here, too? Now, I'm not arguing that, that government schools shouldn't or cannot exist but if you instill choice 
and a competitive nature. Now, all of a sudden, as in your example of the government-owned um, supermarket versus the privately held one, if the privately held supermarket is suddenly watching and waxing the floors every day, providing a wide variety of products, they will help you shop, bring your groceries to the car. They have competitive pricing. They're doing everything they can to attract your business. Then certainly after a time, people are going to vote with their feet and say, hey, these government supermarkets, they just not cutting it. But there's this private supermarket over here. My money spends just as well over there. I'm going to start taking my business in that direction. Were we to have that kind of a scenario when it comes to to supermarkets, you better bet that the government-run supermarkets would have a major motivation because if they realize suddenly the customers are no longer guaranteed but have to be fought for and won, then they would suddenly change their tune. Well, if that is the same case for supermarkets as it would be education, it begs an important question here, Robert, and that is this. Are they afraid of that kind of competition? There's been so much talk about school choice, school vouchers for so many decades now, and yet we can never see the needle move in that direction. What's the roadblock here? And most importantly, how can taxpayers and parents and concerned citizens unblock this this logjam to allow true free enterprise within education, all of education? The roadblock is very simple. A government naturally seeks to accumulate power. It's not that government is inherently evil, but who aspires for a career in government? What does government offer that private enterprise does not? It offers one thing to its employees, the ability to exercise power over another. That's the only characteristic that separates a government organization from a non-governmental organization. Apple seems mighty powerful as it as a corporation, and probably by some measure it is. But Apple is answerable to its customers. As soon as Apple creates an inferior product its customers will leave, and Apple has no way to compel them to stay. The government, with an inferior product, doesn't have to worry about losing customers because it has compulsion as its tool, as its selling device. So therefore, why does government fear private schools? Because Government schools can be controlled. Private schools can be controlled to some degree, but not nearly to the extent. It's the centralization of power um, that makes government so protective of government schools and so fearful of private schools. And power takes many forms, but here, uh, when government can control directly or indirectly, whether through its unions, which are instrumentalities of one particular party, or directly, government needs to control. That's its blood and its oxygen. It's the ability to control. Without control, it has no customers. Private schools only can coerce you to attend If you make the choice, that is the best product for my child. They have to persuade you 
with product and service that they deserve your dollars. Government simply has guns, and they don't have to persuade you to get their dollars. They simply take it through taxation. There's nothing wrong with taxation per se, but understand that taxation merely is forcing you to do something that you would otherwise choose not to do. So government schools are the absence of freedom and the absence of choice. Private schools are the manifestation of freedom and choice because you don't have to go to them if you don't want to. Bob, I know your time is short tonight, but I've got a critical final question for you. We're beginning to see some signs of some fissures, some cracks in the armor. Oh, uh, lots, lots. Yeah, certainly COVID has helped to accelerate that. And as we're beginning to see more and more parents choosing to vote with their feet, particularly in the wake of the COVID-19 scenario, do, do you anticipate that there could eventually be enough momentum to begin to force some reconsideration for options like vouchers? Oh, no, no question whatsoever. And it's happening in the New York school system, the, I think the second biggest school system behind Los Angeles, maybe it's the first, but first or second, doesn't really matter. Uh, in the New York school system, there are, registration has just begun, and there are, dramatic statistical drop-off in registrations in the government schools and increase in the charter schools. It is profound. In New York City, um, last year, 43,000 students less attended public schools, a 4% drop. That's a big number. And uh, private schools increase. So people are voting despite forcing to be paid, to paying for public schools you or government schools that you don't attend besides what you called technically wrong, but economically exactly right, double taxation or double payment. You have to pay for the other person's public school and your own private school. Despite that, private schools are selling a superior product and are doing better. And one final comment on private schools, if I may, um, and that is that the objective evidence is bell clear that although Government schools complain that private schools skim off the best students and not the not the most difficult education. That's not really that's not true at all. But despite that claim, the evidence is irrefutable that public schools or government schools, as you call them, that operate adjacent to charter schools end up being better with a nearby charter school. Not surprising to you and I, Craig, because if the competition is breathing down your back and survival instincts are strong, you are going to get better. And you will feel better about your profession and better about how you spend the day. So the rising tide of freedom lifts all the boats. And so don't be afraid about leaving the dregs in public schools. That's not what actually happens. 
And a little competition, of course, is always healthy because it ultimately is going to uh, bring the cream to the top, as they say. Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show again Sunday mornings. You can catch his program here locally in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 AM, The Answer. He's syndicated everywhere. You can catch him, uh, of course, with no information. you got friends in other parts of the, the country here who want to get information. You can check him out online at bobzadek.com. He's got podcasts. Notes regarding past guests, other resources available to you, along with books available too at bobzadek.com, B O B Z A D E K.com. 545 on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline for August 31st. Let's get a look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There is an idyllic formula for life, and I think we all know how generally it goes. You have school-age crushes, you fall in love around the age of 17 or so, then you're off to college by 18, you marry your high school sweetheart by 22, buy a home, raise a family, retire, you die, and someday you're buried by your surviving children. That's the idyllic formula. Of course, we know that... Contrary to that, life often hands us something quite different. And when that formula falls out of order, it can create a tremendous amount of pain. It can cause people to be stumbling in their relationships, both spiritual as well as with their relationships on the horizontal plane. How do you go about recovering from life when it happens out of order? Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. And Pamela, welcome to the program. Thank you, Craig. Your life kind of happened out of order, in a sense. It did. <laughs> Particularly so, and I think that every parent who's heard of these stories immediately gets that sort of quickening in their hearts that, oh, I never want that to happen to me, that sense that we are supposed to be buried by our children, we're not supposed to bury our children. Mm -hmm. And yet that happened to you not once but twice in a relatively short period of time and then compounded with a divorce after many, many years of marriage. How did all that impact you in terms of your viewpoint on life, and your relationship to God. Well, Craig, really the reason I wrote the book is to support people who go through difficult times in their life and to let them know that there, there really is light at the end of the tunnel. I feel so blessed by God to have a life that is filled with joy, regardless of the fact that I have had suffering. And I wanted to share that with people and give people hope and also support people who are going through something at a particular moment that they may have read the book or be reading the book. You describe your experience as feeling lonely and isolated. And it's funny because so oftentimes we'll go through the loss of a loved one. There will be a grieving process. There mm -hmm. will be a funeral. People send cards. They send flowers. They telephone us. They send over the proverbial the, the casserole for dinner and things of this sort. They try to give us a lot of attention, and yet there's a time when that activity slows down, and then suddenly you're left with that sense of the why questions uh -huh. and struggling through that, that tremendous sense of loss and that isolation. And it's amazing that you can be surrounded by people, and yet because of that experience, you feel so terribly lonely and isolated. I, I think that the, the loneliness I felt was more around my, my marriage than around the deaths of the children, mm. oddly enough. Uh, 
there was a sense of loneliness, even though I was married, because we weren't able to really communicate in the way that uh, I had hoped, or I think even he had hoped. And um, and it was a sense of, of really needing to to find a way to either communicate or to separate. And um, I, I think I, I sometimes would say to myself that having to go through a divorce was almost more painful because it was a, really a dream that was just completely broken and I wasn't able to live out what I had hoped. I have always believed that the children are gifts from God. I have five children two of whom live with God in the spirit world and three of whom I see very often and who have grandchildren. And I feel blessed with the three that I have and I feel blessed with the two that are with God. But they are God's. I've been given them just for a short period of time. You have to look at it from a perspective of of the children being on loan from God. Exactly. And that's not to say that I didn't grieve very, very deeply when each of those children passed to God. You mentioned about that tremendous sense, though, of isolation and loneliness over the marriage. And it's yes. interesting because as much as I point to um, how we will have a grieving process and, and culture provides for mm-hmm. uh, sympathy cards and acknowledgement yes. of the loss and things of this sort, but that really doesn't happen around a divorce, does no, it? The death it of doesn't. a marriage, you don't, no. you don't get, people don't send you cards, you don't no. get flowers. I think people who have had to go through divorce, really understand that no one would do that unless they absolutely had to, that it's a it's a very painful thing to have to do. And um, I often I often think, what if I didn't have to do that? What if if the marriage were still there? And yet it, it wasn't. And I have to acknowledge that it was just the way it was meant to be. Was it important for you to come to a point in life, Pamela, where you grieved for the loss oh, of I that? grieved deeply. I grieved deeply even before uh, I, I separated from my, my husband because I could see it coming, I could feel it coming, and there was some way that, you know, it's like a wave, we couldn't stop it. And um, I'm, I'm going to cry myself to sleep because I knew that's what I was going to have to do. A lot of people go through that experience, be it the loss of a loved one that's very near and dear yes. or a marriage and those past injuries those old wounds they continue as as untreated gaping wounds that continue to fester and oftentimes hinder our spiritual progress and certainly hamper our relationship with God and with others did you find yourself going through that what what set you on the spiritual journey that you took to sort of get reconnected with God in a deep way and to go looking for for a lot of the answers that you sought well when Maggie died she was four months old I really wasn't involved in spirituality I went to church every week and I had a relationship with God that I think was significant but I didn't have any awareness. I hadn't done a lot of reading or studying. It wasn't until Sean died, and Sean died when he was 16. He took his own life. But at that point, I was studying theology, and I was much more aware. I also had experienced the death of a child, so I knew I wasn't going to die. Uh, with Maggie, I, I didn't know if I could continue living. I, I wasn't suicidal, but it was the pain was so great that how does one live you know, with that level of pain. And that had been a, a difficult childbirth, as I recall. It was a book. very difficult childbirth, then yes. Then you went through postpartum depression, which I don't know at that time, did we even really understand? Did we have a name for it at no, that time? No, I, 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 I don't think we did. 
uh, I don't know. I think people did understand that there was some some sort of hormonal change that was happening that women who just gave birth would be sad. But with Maggie, it was the shock of having a, a C-section and 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 just I just was completely undone at her birth. She almost died at her birth. Say, that, that must have been a particularly painful because it was a challenging childbirth. Yes. And, and both of your lives were at risk at one point. Were they, they were, not? yes. So to get through all of that and kind of have the, we made it through. Right. She survived. I survived. Right. And then four months later... This huge black dark cloud rolls in on top That's of right. your life with sudden her, infant death, her loss. Yeah, that sets a lot of people into a downward spiral that some folks unfortunately never really recover from. That's right, and I do a lot of work with people who have lost children, and I don't know if I could say overcome, but I have regained my strength emotionally and. I've spent a lot of time with the pain, feeling the pain with God and asking for healing. Do you think that's important? And I ask that, Pamela, because so often our society is is created in a fashion or we're encouraged in a fashion to try to avoid pain or anesthetize pain. People go through different things in life and I can't handle it. So they reach to the pill bottle. They go to the booze. Maybe they begin overeating. There, there's something in there or become a workaholic. There's something in there that distracts them from going through the pain. And I'm reminded that Christ certainly never promised us that there would be no pain. In fact, we're reminded in Scripture that the rain falls in both the just and the unjust. And so that sense maybe of the importance of learning that we are capable in him and through him to go through the pain as opposed to going around it. That's exactly. And I think being a Christian, I could sit with Jesus and I could he could understand me and I could sit with Mary. I'm raised Catholic, so Mary has been always important to me in my life. She, she knows what it's like to lose a child. She does she? know what it's like to lose a child. And so she became a, a great companion for me as I grieved the death of my children. And w- with Sean particularly, I, I think I had the wisdom to understand that if I didn't feel the pain and allow myself to really experience it, that I would never be to the other side. I, w- mm. I would have done something to anesthetize myself. And it becomes a... A major stumbling block, doesn't it? I mean, if you, if you don't go through the grieving process, if you don't, in a sense, legitimize the pain, sometimes we want to hide it because we don't know how to handle it, or society is telling us to buck up, hang in there. Exactly. I bet there were people that said, well, now, Pamela, but you still have three other children. Oh. What about them? Yes. Is this somehow you're going to have that... Uh, <laughs> Or, you know, uh, slap on the forehead moment and say, oh, of course, what was I thinking? Right. People sometimes just don't really understand, do they? No, they and so don't. In, their, in their effort to try and be kind, they're actually heaping more more coals upon our heads unwittingly. Well, you, you said it in the beginning that uh, this losing a child for many people is their worst fear. And so they don't want to see you in pain. So, gosh, it's been a year. Aren't you okay? And it's uncomfortable for people to be with other people who are grieving, especially if you're not willing to feel your own pain. You don't want to be with people that are in pain. I have a lot of compassion for people who are grieving because I felt my pain. Not to say that I, there won't be another moment where, where I'll experience an aspect of my past that I need to spend time with God with. 
because we never know when we're finished. We never know when when everything has been healed. Uh, But I, I do have compassion for people because I'm not afraid of pain. Pain has transformed me. If you've just joined us, my guest today is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 